Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. And hey, we are your hosts. I'm Greg Knott. And I'm Bill Hostler. And I'm Darren Laners. Tonight, we have a very special guest, T.S. Aker from Oklahoma. T.S. is a Freemason there, and he is a prolific author. And just before we get started, let me go through his listing of books here. And these are available on Amazon. If you search him, you will find them. There's five of them. The first is Chili Macintosh and the Muskegee Nation. 1800-1875, the Grand Priest of Oklahoma Royal Arch Masonry. Another is the Illustrious Grand Masters of Oklahoma Cryptic Masonry, Knights on the Prairie, A History of Templary in Oklahoma, and Masonic Generals of the Oklahoma National Guard from 1894 to 1965. And so you can see his research efforts are certainly uh, focused on the great state of Oklahoma. And with that, T.S., we are more than welcome to welcome you to our podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. If you can, share with us some of your Masonic background, and uh, and we'll get into the books. And it's really, it's fascinating to, to speak with somebody that has so much history on a specific geographic area. That's, that's different than anybody we've interviewed thus far. So again, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I became a Freemason in 2005 in my uh, hometown lodge, um, which is uh, Eufaula Lodge Number 1, and I joined the York Rite shortly thereafter. Uh, that was, that, I believe that was also 2005. I've gone through the chairs in the York Rite and a couple of different York Rite bodies here in Oklahoma. I joined the Scottish Rite in uh, 2011, and I currently serve as the uh, curator of collections for the uh, Museum of the McAllister Scottish Rite Valley here in Oklahoma. T.S., I mean, absolutely, you know more about Oklahoma history pretty much than anybody I've met here in this state. And since our subject tonight is Native Americans and, and Freemason history, can you kind of just give us an overview before of what of Freemasonry and Native Americans before we really dig deep into the subject? Yeah, so I, I think Freemasonry and, and indigenous peoples in America is an interesting topic. To me, I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation, so it's something near and dear to my heart. And one of the questions that, that people have, have often asked me is, you know, when did, when did, you know, Freemasonry and, and native peoples sort of come together in America, I guess you could say. And, you know, you look at, you're looking at a time period in the 19th century, in the late 1820s to the 1830s and 1840s. And this is a, this is a time when, uh, many American Indians started converting to Christianity, either upon arrival in, in the New Indian Territory west of the Mississippi or east of the Mississippi, but, but mostly west of the Mississippi. So you had these conversions to Christianity. You had tribal headmen who were traveling to Washington DC to negotiate treaties with the United States. And it was often while in Washington, D.C. that these tribal headmen became Freemasons. And then um, I believe in 1848 here in Indian Territory, I'll say, in, in Tahlequah, the, the first Masonic Lodge was established in the Indian Territory. And that was a Cherokee Lodge. Today, it's Cherokee Lodge number 10. So that's that's where Freemasonry sort of began to spread among uh, Native peoples. Now, of course, Freemasonry arrived in what would become the Indian Territory when the Army came west. So when Fort Gibson was established, uh, Matthew Arbuckle was a Freemason, and, and of course some of the officers under his command would have been Freemasons. And then you had 
Indian agents and various other peoples moving through, but Freemasonry really began to take hold in the Indian Territory in the 1840s. I've been watching your videos on YouTube, and if you're really, if you have a few minutes and you're interested in Native American history and Freemason history, you should really go out and check these out. It's a very fascinating subject. I noticed that much of the information about Freemasonry and Native Americans was much in northern, the northeastern section of Oklahoma and of Arkansas, there around Fort Gibson, Fort Smith, that area, just south here of the mountains range here in, in my area of southern Oklahoma. The Chickasaw and the Choctaw, were they very um, active in Freemasonry at any time? The Choctaws were in particular, and when you're looking at the spread of Freemasonry in the early Indian territories, you're also looking at where military posts were established. So at Fort Towson, the community of Dokesville developed, and the Choctaws established a lodge there. The Chickasaws, I don't believe their lodges really got, lodges in the Chickasaw Nation, I should say, really got underway until after the Civil War. I'm just scanning over my notes here to see. Yeah, so the yeah, Chickasaw Lodge did not come about really, I don't believe, until after the Civil War. So the Choctaws were involved, but you know, when you get further west like that into the Chickasaw Nation, I think the, the most western military post over there was Fort Washita in that region. And there was there was never a lodge or a community that developed around Fort Washita during that period. So Chickasaws would have been involved in Freemasonry and certainly were, but you, you're really looking at the Choctaw, the Creek, and the Cherokee nations. The Seminoles, I have not they they didn't really particularly have any sort of involvement in that. The Seminoles were always sort of this renegade tribe. They were a break off of the Muscogee Creek Nation. They would really allow just about anyone to join the tribe. So you had a lot of outlaws and bandits, etc., operating amongst the Sem in the Seminole Nation. So. Well, that's rather interesting. I mean, I've also heard, you know, in the five tribes, there's also the Caddo tribe down here. I don't think they're very, are they even still a tribe in this area now? Caddo was not one of the five tribes. Now, there is the town of Caddo, which is in the Choctaw Nation. Caddo would have been one of the the older Indian tribes uh, that I believe was in the area before the five tribes got. Okay, and you know what? I've, in my reading, I've read where there's been a lot of talk that Native Americans had their own, like, was it horse Freemasonry? And that's there's been instances where white men and free and American Indians actually was able to tell signs from each other and was able to help each other in various situations. Is there any truth to any of that? So there, there was an old Masonic luminary in the Indian Territory. His name was Edmund H. Doyle, and he was a, a past grand everything. This was in the 19th century. And he used to tell a story about how he was traveling late one night I don't know. I don't recall if it was in the winter or, or the spring or something. A storm came up, and um, he was he was seeking shelter, and he found a Choctaw Indian there. And the Indian made a sign, and Doyle made a sign. The Indian didn't speak English. Doyle didn't speak Choctaw, but they made these what Doyle described as Masonic signs, and they were able to communicate. And the Indian gave aid to Doyle. Doyle referred to this as as horse masonry, but as we know masonry, there was no there were there was no Indian masonry practiced before European influence, European contact. So I don't know that a, a horse masonry like Doyle described ever existed 
And that is the only instance that I have ever heard someone reference that. Now, were there secret societies in the five tribes or, or societies of, of the elders who would come together to, to promulgate, you know, good, uh, good practices of, of civics and whatnot? Yes. Did they form organizations within the tribe for those sorts of things? Perhaps. And, and, you know, those sorts of things might have died out over time, but, but as far as a, a horse masonry goes, there's only one reference to that throughout the history of Inuits. I, I remember hearing, and I, I tried to find something about it today. I read, I think it was when I first became a mason. It was in one of the, I think it was one of those books that probably today would be, you know, discounted, but it supposedly were in a, a white man who had been captured by Indians, and he was going to be burned at the stake, but he gave the grand hailing sign of distress right before he was to be burned, and the chief noticed it. He stopped it and let the man go. And I've been trying to find, I tried to find that some kind of example of that today, but I cannot find it. So I know I read it, but I'm thinking that it was probably just something that, you know, one of those, you know, one of those books from the 19th century that have rather been kind of you know, exaggerated as by today's standards. And I've heard that, I've heard that, ref, that's a similar story to that reference before. And it, the, the, the person who had asked me about, about it at that time was in reference to one of the Western tribes, which I, I found interesting, but the Western tribes were not practicing Freemasonry to any extent. So, Again, could there have been, it's almost like, you know, uh, the man who would be king when, when those two, two British loafers arrive up in, in Kafiristan and they discover the, the natives practicing a, a crude form of masonry. So it, 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 it rings of that. So. I was watching your video today and I was, I was kind of taken aback because part of it kind of rings true to today's current events, sadly. I was discussing about Albert Pike, who was a Confederate general at the time, and now he was sent by the Confederacy to make treaties with the five tribes. And most of, and some of those, like, you know, your descendant, Chile McIntosh, and those, I believe it was Chile, had made some type of, um, had made treaties with the Confederacy, and they had agreed to make armies, but Pike, who had heard that, you know, he'd ended up quitting the Confederate army because he, didn't agree, you know, they, they, they said that they wanted to move them out and make them fight, but they weren't equipped or clothed. Is that, could you elaborate on that a little better than I can? Yeah, exactly. So Pike, Pike had made a number of friends in the five tribes before the Civil War. He had represented the Creek Nation in particular in claims against the United States in court and had prevailed on behalf of the Creek Nation. So all of these tribal headmen in the Indian Territory, they knew Pike. And that was one of the reasons why Pike was selected as the Confederate Indian agent and sent and sent west from Arkansas, obviously, to uh, to negotiate these treaties. Pike, he was a terrible general, and and people like to a number of people have capitalized on the fact that he was a Confederate general, but he was he was a terrible he was a terrible general. He he had one engagement, and that I believe that was at. at Pea Ridge and his command lacked discipline and he quickly retreated to basically the Texas border on the Red River where he started building Fort McCulloch and, and then shortly thereafter resigned his commission. But, but Pike's command, his Indian brigade, had a number of challenges. In the treaties he negotiated, it was stipulated, and this is 
typical with militia, that the Indian Brigade was not to be moved outside of the bounds of the Indian Territory or the Indian nations without the consent of the tribe. Of course, Confederate High Command for the Trans-Mississippi Theater, they had other plans, and they wanted to use the Indian Brigade in operations in, in southwestern Missouri, northwestern Arkansas, outside of the Indian Territory. Pike, when Pike moved, first moved his command to take part in the Battle of Pea Ridge, the Indians refused to go because they hadn't been paid. So he had to pay them before they would leave, and, and they were late arriving at the Battle of Pea Ridge. But then he was ordered to move his command again for operations in Arkansas, and and he Pike refused he, he because the Indians weren't in agreement. They were also undersupplied, as you noted. They they weren't receiving adequate pow, powder rations. They weren't receiving adequate clothing. And this is sixty two, early you know not early sixty two, but mid sixty two. So so Pike resigned his commission, and that's all. That's the last you hear of him for the war. But no, the the Indian Brigade was not being adequately supplied at the onset of the Civil War. Now, and these guys, they went to war with, you know, their own hunting rifles or what were called trade rifles and shotguns, dressed themselves. So, you know, it was a hodgepodge of clothing. By 1863, the summer of 1863, they were they had received a, a clothing allowance, I believe, from the Houston Depot. But as far as armament and supply, they, they were still still very much undersupplied. So like at the Battle of Honey Springs, for example, the Indian Brigade's there, and uh, the entire Confederate Army is using cheap Mexican gunpowder, which would barely ignite on a good day, and then it rained the day of the battle, and it would not ignite, period. So being undersupplied was, was a problem for the Indians throughout the war. So they ended up continuing to fight once Pike resigned, though. Correct, yes. So Pike Pike resigned his commission. The Indian Brigade stayed in the field, and it was then under the command of, of another another white man, Douglas Cooper, who he ended up living in, the, I believe, the Chickasaw Nation after the war. So Douglas H. Cooper, in time, uh, Stan Wadey would, would rise to the rank of Brigadier General, but he never had command of the entire Indian Brigade. I remember, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember Brother Lance Cates telling me this one time before he passed away, that Oklahoma is unusual that compared to the other jurisdictions in the United States, that we have actually two Grand Lodges that operate here. One of them is still the Indian Territory Grand Lodge, and that there's, but then there's also the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma that they never ceased working on the Grand Lodge of, of the Indian Territory, and that if you're the Grand Master of one, that you become the Grand Master of both of them. Is that actually true? My understanding is yes, and if you look at the proceedings today of the Grand Lodge, it tells you what number of, what annual proceeding it is of the Grand Lodge of Indian Territory, what annual proceeding it is of the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma, and then when the two in, the two Grand Lodges came together, they formed the Grand Lodge of the State of Oklahoma. So, yes, we, we are an interesting jurisdiction owing to statehood because the, the twin territories, and, you know, those, statehood came in 1907. The Grand Lodges did not merge until 1909. And this story gets more interesting 
because we had two Grand Commanderies, the Grand Commandery of Oklahoma and the Grand Commandery of Indian Territory, and those two jurisdictions did not merge until 1911. The the one, the, 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 the unifying factor in all of that being, you know, we've only ever had one Grand Chapter of Royal Archmasons, and we've only ever had one Grand Council of Cryptic Masons. So the the, our royal, our royal and, and cryptic brothers, or companions, I should say, they, they, the Indian Territory companions exerted domination over Oklahoma Territory, and rightfully so. I think I've seen somewhere where the lodge that I belong to here in Oklahoma, Ardmore 31, was was chartered originally under the Indian Territory, and so I, you know, I, I found that and I looked at that. Well, that's rather interesting. But speaking of the Yorkite and Grand Commanderies, there's a story that you've kind of alluded to, and I've always heard about, and about you being on your Grand Commandery and how you left the Grand Commandery. And it's been asked that you tell this story. Can you please enlighten us? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know that I left on my own terms, but uh, I, there was it was a, a Saturday morning. I was getting dressed to go to a York Rite Field Day, and I had taken to the habit of wearing socks that were a color other than black. And oftentimes they would be black with a red stripe or, or something to that effect. And uh, that morning. I put on a pair of, of Union Jack socks, to which my wife remarked, I said, you can't wear those. Those are un-American. And, uh, and I, and I said, well, I'm going to do it. And that was, that was the beginning of my downfall. So, <laughs> but, uh, apparently, apparently, if I had probably worn American flag socks that morning, I, I'd probably be telling a very different story today. I'm also a proud owner of Union Jack socks. I actually think I have, uh, two pairs that have the, the Union Jack on them. So I'll be sure to wear those for your visit, Bill, just to uh, just in honor of Brother Aker. Well, I'll have a cup of tea in both of your honors tonight before I go to All bed. Right. That'll that'll work, Brother Akers, uh I was watching your video earlier, and there's a very interesting story regarding a former Grandmaster and Governor of Oklahoma, Henry S. Johnston. <laughs> and could you kind of go into that? And uh, you said in the video that yoga was his undoing, but I don't think you uh, elaborated on that. So I'm just kind of curious what uh, the story is behind that. Yeah, so uh, I guess two years ago now, there was a really great article in the Chronicles of Oklahoma, which is the, the scholarly publication of the Oklahoma Oklahoma Historical Society. And the, the title of that paper was Curious Links, Unorthodox Ideas from Andalusian Speculation to New Thought and Utopian Hopes in Early Oklahoma Politics. Now, what I liked about that paper was that it illustrated how early Oklahoma politicians were really a bunch of cranks. And you could say the same about Oklahoma politicians today. One of our early governors, Henry S. Johnston, was also Grandmaster of Masons. Johnston was a serial joiner of organizations. So he was a Freemason. He was into the Theosophical Society, Rosicrucians, but not the Masonic Rosicrucians, a variety of other organizations. And um, there was this yogi, and I don't think the chap was actually Indian, but he had an Eastern Indian name, who was on a national tour, and Johnston became, you know, really interested in this guy. And, and so we, they were doing yoga in the governor's mansion, and, and that was scandalous at the time. They were also holding seances and a variety of other things. 
Johnston, like a couple of other early Oklahoma governors, ran afoul of the state legislature. They didn't like him. He didn't like them. So there was a there were two two moves to impeach Johnston. The first time the legislature was going to impeach him, he called out the, the National Guard in order to prevent the legislature from convening so that they could impeach him. So they came back, I believe, the next session, and uh, I think there were 11 charges um, against Johnston, and the only the only thing they were able to impeach Johnston on was uh, – was general incompetence. So he was removed from office. Oklahoma, Oklahoma has, I think, impeached three governors and removed two from office. So we, we know a thing or two about that. Uh, so Johnson was removed from office. And, and anytime I'm, I'm talking or introducing a grandmaster of Oklahoma or any, anytime I have this opportunity, I always make sure to let everyone know that, that, you know, our, our grandmasters have something in common with an impeached governor. So. Johnson was one of those interesting characters who just had a lot of crazy ideas. Well, I guess better impeached than incarcerated, which is a history of governors here in Illinois. <laughs> that would be a podcast onto itself, however. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your video was the beginning. Uh, you gave a very brief but uh, very wonderful synopsis of Freemasonry. And I hope I'm not paraphrasing here. But I think you said Freemasonry is an initiatic rite for men that teaches a system of ethics and morality aimed at putting them on the path to mature masculinity. The system of morality is presented to the initiates through degrees which are ritualistic plays. The intent is to awaken initiates to the highest ideas of manhood so that they can become good role models for their family, their community, and their friends. Is that yours? Did you come up with that, or are you... Uh... That's that's part of me, and uh, and I worked on that definition of Freemasonry with Robert Davis. So some of, that's, some of that's him as well. So the two of us worked on that together. And when I present to non-Masonic audiences, I like to start with that because people always have questions. Well, what is Freemasonry? People have wild speculations, you know, about it as well. So I think that's a, it's a good, thorough definition. And I, what I particularly like about that is, you know, the path to mature masculinity. And I think that's something that's important for everyone to understand this day and age because you on social media, it abounds that, oh, masculinity is terrible and, and whatnot and, and toxic masculinity. But I think there's this important distinction between what is mature and toxic would be immature. So mature masculinity is, is obviously a good thing. It's, it's a, it's that the guiding fatherly hand. So like I said, I was just really impressed by that. So uh, my hat's off to you and Brother Davis for coming up with that. And I may actually uh, borrow it now, but I'll be sure to credit both of you because it's just, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, just uh, description of it. Yes, I read in your bio that you have a degree in museum studies. And you mentioned in your intro that you're the curator for the Scottish Rite Museum. I was wondering if you could expound upon that. And then I noticed and read that you have a, uh, a military uniform collection and that you had done uh, curated a display on those. So I was wondering if you could also talk about that as well. Yes. Yeah, so the, the museum and library of the McAllister Scottish Rite was established in, I want to say 59, 1959, sometime in the fifties. And it is a, it was a collection of, of items that were given to our valley uh, over the years and 
things continually given to our valley. The museum operated for many years without direction, as I've discovered when I when I took over. I was I was appointed to the position of curator in I believe 2014, and when I arrived on the scene, our our museum's collection was was more of an accumulation of items. What I've always find particularly interesting about our valley's collection and things I discover new things constantly, which is common, is that a lot of the when you're reading Oklahoma Masonic history and you read the names of some of these really prominent men who founded particular organizations or or helped establish the Masonic Children's Home or, or did something great, you read these names. But then in our collections in McAllister, because these were all Eastern Oklahoma guys, Indian Territory guys, their items at some point arrived at the McAllister Scottish Rite Valley. So we have amazing pieces that belong to early uh, early Masonic luminaries. And um, and the other thing that I've managed to do in this capacity is this, we're still collecting. And occasionally I found some really great things out there. One of the early Oklahoma, the, the guy who was everything, he was Grand Master, Grand High Priest, Grand Commander. He was also SGIG of the Scottish Rite. His name is Daniel Haley. And a collection of items of his turned up for sale on eBay in Florida, of all places. And what it was was his past Grand Presiding Officer jewels, all in 10 karat gold. So we were able to acquire those in McAllister and add to our collection. So we have a, we have, like I said, it's, it's always interesting as to what I might find that's tucked away in a, in a corner or somewhere. So our museum in McAllister, it tells uh, the story of uh, Freemasonry in Indian territory up through the merging of the two Grand Lodges. So we've got quite a collection that, that ex- explains that growth and, and then the particular appendant bodies and, and with uh, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. And one of the great things about, you know, McAllister's Scottish Rite Valley is, is the York Rite came first in McAllister, and our Scottish Rite Valley was established by prominent York Rite Masons. So you see this interplay between the two rites and how they were of equal importance to these men. Comment on your on the on the uniform collection. That I love military things and military history and it just sounds fascinating. And what got you interested in that? So as a, as a, as a young boy growing up in Eastern Oklahoma, I started collecting, I, I would play, play army and, and I got involved in civil war reenacting in the mid nineties. And then I collected military off and on. And then in about 2010, um, when I got a real job, I said, I decided I want to get serious on something. And I started collecting army and air force general officer uniforms. And I had amassed a, a rather large collection of those. I think I had about 60-some-odd uniforms, all named and identified to specific generals from the Spanish-American War up to the current engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when when I was pursuing my master's in museum studies, uh, one of my course assignments was to uh, to write an exhibit script. So I wrote an exhibit script around my collection, and the exhibit was titled Stars on Their Shoulders, American Military Uniforms in the 20th Century. So the, the exhibit showed the evolution of the American military uniform, service and dress uniforms, and dinner uniforms through general officers. 
And I was able to field that exhibit at a museum in Kingfisher, Oklahoma, the Chisholm Trail Museum. I, I had a friend who was the director there, and they had a gallery space where they would do rotating exhibits. And I had a handful of uniforms that belonged to Oklahoma general officers. Um, so we incorporated those and were able to, to, to display 14 different uniforms that showed the evolution from the Spanish-American War up to up to Vietnam or so through dress and service uniforms. So it was, it was a fun exhibit to 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 write and uh, and and assemble, and it was pretty well received, which was which was which was nice. So my collecting during the quarantine took. Uh, took a turn, and um, I'd, I've always uh, been interested in um, the British Empire. So I've started, I've since started collecting late Victorian through the Great War British uniforms, and I've actually been liquidating American generals. So, uh, so I've got a whole new array in my study now. That's awesome. Let me ask you a different question. With being in Oklahoma, uh, you see, you know, multiculturals. You know, different cultures there together. What do you think different cultures can bring to Freemasonry? What can we learn from one another from different cultures? You know, the European culture, the, the Native American culture, especially in this time in, in American history. What are the lessons that you've seen we can learn from each other that, you know, really exemplify our Masonic values and can make the world truly a better place? So what I think American Indians have always been able to bring to Freemasonry is an idea of perseverance. And particularly in Oklahoma, you know, we, we, we were stripped of our lands in the East, beginning with treaties that were, were punitive in nature, particularly to the Creek Nation, owing to the Red Sticks War, which was a Creek Civil War that erupted during the War of 1812. So, you know, the federal government took a, a fair portion of our land then, and then they, you know, they come back in the late 1820s and the 1830s and take more, and we move west, um, but we didn't disappear. We arrived in what would become our new homes and, and the new Indian Territory, and we, we thrived, and the Civil War comes along as particularly devastating, but we survived, and, and then... The Treaty of 1866 further diminishes our our lands because we've sided with the wrong side again. But we didn't disappear. We we continued to survive and again thrive. And Freemasonry is an organization that you know in the United States probably peaked in the 20s and has been on the decline since. But it's surviving and. A fair number of the early indigenous lodges in Indian Territory still exist. So, I mean, you follow Lodge Number One, Cherokee Lodge Number Ten, Flint Lodge Number Eleven. Those, those are, those are still with us. They've survived. So, this idea of being able to adapt, adapt to changes and challenges, and find a way to thrive that has become you know, indigenous existence. I think that's something that Freemasonry could probably do well to learn from and, and has to an extent. I'm probably the only Mason in Oklahoma who hasn't ever seen the Oklahoma Indiana, excuse me, Indian degree team. Can you tell our listeners about the Indian degree team that's based here in Oklahoma? Yes. So the Indian degree team is, it's a, it's a group that performs uh, Oklahoma Masonic ritual in 
Indian regalia. Now, uh, when I say Indian regalia, their requirements to be members of the degree team, of that degree team, require that they participate in powwows. And that sort of Indian regalia is, is Plains tribes regalia, the dance regalia. So they perform in Western Indian regalia, and they perform the, the three degrees of, of ancient craft masonry. And uh, they also do dance presentations when they go out and do things, when they go out and do degrees and whatnot. The principal actors in um, the Sacred Order of the White Buffalo that the Grand Lodge of Oklahoma runs, and which is a... It's a degree that is uh it's a fundraising degree for the Grand Lodge building. But they uh the Indian degree team, if you've if you've never I've actually never seen them perform the three degrees, but I've seen them do their, their dance exhibitions. And uh it's impressive to watch. And these guys they I mean, for the most part they hand make all their their regalia and everything. because uh, you know, there's there's not a there's not a any sort of entity that's just mass producing some, those sorts of things. So I've told um, Darren and um, Greg that they should come down here. I think it's in August when they actually do order the white buffalo. I think they'd find that interesting. You know, and I, 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 I've never seen it actually. In fact, it's going to sound strange, but I've never actually seen the Master Mason degree performed in Oklahoma. <laughs> well, the the, uh, the the order of the sacred white buffalo is. Historically in August, I don't know if it'll happen this year or not. I am a uh, perpetual member of that organization. A few years ago, I got a, I got a call from a friend of mine. And this was after uh, Jim Tresner had passed away. I got a call. I said, TS, uh, we got the order of the white buffalo coming up. And Jim Tresner always gave a talk on, on Native Americans and Freemasonry before the, before the order. And do you think you could come and do that for us? And I said, well, yeah, I, I suppose I could. So I, I, I wrote something up and, uh, you know, Jim Tresner liked the romantic idea of Native Americans and Freemasonry and I take a more academic approach. Uh, so they got a talk that I don't think they had ever heard before and I've never been asked back. But, uh, that talk sort of, I was able to expand that into, into, my longer talk, which is what my the, the video is you were referencing on, on YouTube, and that that was a talk that I was asked to give in Washington D.C. I think two years ago now to Union Lodge Number Six in Washington D.C. Um, you know, speaking that was going to be my next thing. That's a great segue. Speaking of Brother Trisner, it was two years ago this week that he we lost him, and I was going to ask you if you have anything to do with the um, Grand Lodge Library and Museum up in Guthrie, because I know I think his library is actually part of that now. You are correct that that his library is is has formed its own collection there at the Grand Lodge Library and Museum. I think because you know if you, if you go up there, they've got those two. I think it's two lodge rooms downstairs, and one of those is being converted into um, a live uh, a, a library room. I guess you could say a reading room to feature his collection. So you are you are it's correct. It's funny about because that. and this is going to sound crazy, but Jim Tresner has been one of my very favorite Masonic authors of all time. And I was up at the Scottish Rite in Guthrie one time, and I was like ten foot away from him, and I wanted to introduce myself, but I was just so starstruck I couldn't do it. And I just stood there and stared at him, and he probably thought I was a Looney Tune, which if most people know me probably would confirm that. You know, I never did get a chance to actually meet him, and that's one of the regrets I do have because it was a year or two after that he passed. But he he was a, I, he just was always I think because he was a plain smoking man, and he he wrote 
the way I like to read, and I can only really understand. But is and if I remember right, the the white buffalo that's very sacred to the native tribes. That's something that's extremely rare. And if it's something like that happens, it's a sign from up above. Is that even remotely close? It's it's a Western tribe thing, but I think you are correct. So, because I, I mean, you got a, five tribes. We didn't really we didn't have buffaloes in eastern Oklahoma. The the Chickasaws would occasionally venture out on a buffalo hunt. One of my ancestors, uh, Chili McIntosh, I think he went on a buffalo hunt once. Once they got out here to the Indian Territory, but that's more of a, a Western a Western um, indigenous uh, thing, and I don't I don't know all the specifics. Tell us on. about Chili McIntosh. I you know he he was quite a colorful character, and since He's definitely one of your descendants, or, you know, your relatives. It's a rather interesting story. Yeah, so Chili McIntosh is one of these guys that you can't talk about Creek history without talking about Chili McIntosh. He was a, a Baptist minister. He was a judge. He was a, a clerk for the Creek Nation. He was a, an officer um, in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. So he was sort of a, a Renaissance man. You know, in his 60s, he was out fighting a war, was one of the oldest men doing so in the Indian Territory. And he, uh, he's just, he's, in, in my opinion, he's an impressive individual in Creek history because of all the things that he did and all the places he was. He met the Marquis de Lafayette when he did his tour of the South in the 1820s. He knew Andrew Jackson, he knew Albert Pike. He had he traveled to Washington D.C. on at least one occasion on tribal business, and you got to recall, I mean, in the 19th century, these were no easy feats. You know, if you're coming from Indian Territory going to Washington D.C. because you're basically the Indian Territory was the end of the earth. And he was also a Freemason too, wasn't he? Chile was not a Freemason. Now there are secondary sources that say he was, but I have not been able to find any primary source that indicates that. Now, his half-brother Daniel was a Mason, and numerous other men in the McIntosh family were Masons. But I have not I've not been able to find evidence that Chile was, but Chile, when he was ordained a Baptist minister, he was ordained by a fellow named H.F. Um, Buckner, who was, a, who was a Baptist missionary in the Indian Territory and was also a Freemason. So Chile knew all of the prominent Freemasons at the time and, and was associates with them and friends with them. His son, William Frederick, married a woman whose father was a Freemason, and he was a member of Cherokee Lodge in Tahlequah, and later a member of um, Muscogee Lodge, which became Ufala Lodge, which is my home lodge. So all of these guys knew each other, It he, but I, again, I haven't been able to find any records that primary sources that indicate that Chile was a Mason. Now, here on this show in the past episodes, we've talked quite a bit about the um, COVID-19, and you know, we're not one who doesn't mind picking up a, a bat and beating a dead horse a little while, you know. But since I've seen on your blog, OklahomaMasonicHistory.blogspot, you had a an article about Freemasonry in Oklahoma. I believe it was Freemasonry in Oklahoma and the Spanish flu. Can you tell the people what it was like for those brothers back then, what they had to deal with? Yes. Yeah, so my current, uh, my, I'm going to say my current lodge. My home lodge is Ufala Lodge. My city lodge is Guildhall Lodge, um, number 553. And we had, we've been having Zoom meetings. And at our May Zoom meeting, one of the brothers asked, you know, well, what, you know, what, how were Freemasons responding, uh, to the Spanish flu in 1918? I was 
really trying to keep my head down during this conversation and was, well, Tracing, can you, or TS, can you, uh, can you write something up and, and deliver on that for us? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And I was really hoping to avoid the topic of, of the Spanish flu and, and COVID because it's, it's again, it's one of those, uh, hand grenades that has become, seems to become. But Freemasonry in Oklahoma in 1918 responded in a fashion that I think Freemasonry in Oklahoma is responding today. The Grand Master took note of what was happening. He suspended all Masonic activity, and I believe beginning in October of 1918, I think you've got to recall things were really starting to, to heat up in September. And Oklahoma as a state, essentially shut everything down for about a month in 1918. People seem to have forgotten that. Movie theaters were closed. Churches were closed. I don't know that schools were closed, but I think they might have been. And everyone stayed home and they stayed away from each other, um, much as everyone did today. So all Masonic activity was suspended beginning in October, and that carried on through... January, uh, through January. So there were no elections of officers for, for 1919 or anything to that effect. And the Grand Lodge at the time was supposed to convene in February. So knowing that this was coming, the Grand Master, he, he considered things pretty seriously. And he, he sent out a letter asking the lodges, you know, should we, should we, uh, postpone Grand Lodge for, for, you know, 30 to 60 days and, and, uh, and then proceed because at that time, apparently Grand Lodge lasted 10 days. And he said, you know, we're going to bring, um, the best of society together for, for these 10 days. And I can, I have a pretty good idea as to what the outcome would be if, if we do that. So I, it was like 95% of the lodges were in favor of, of postponing Grand Lodge. And to pacify that, that small minority that was against postponing the, the Grand Master, he called the Grand Lodge, he called a meeting of the Grand Lodge in Oklahoma City. Now, this was in 1919, so they would have been meeting at what was then called the Baptist White Temple on uh, Broadway in downtown Oklahoma City. And he found that there was no quorum to hold Grand Lodge, so they, they postponed Grand Lodge until April. And the York Rite took similar actions, you know, the... Grand High Priest made no chapter visits. The Grand Commander made no annual inspections of his commandery. So, yeah, Masonic activity in general was just suspended like it has, like it was today. And, and you know, society shut down for the, for the good of the people. And, and what I thought was particularly interesting when I was doing the research on that is when you look at the deaths in 1917, Masonic deaths in 1917, and I think it was like 300. And then you looked at Masonic deaths in 1918, and oddly enough, the number was 1,918 Oklahoma Masons died in 1918. Now, we don't know what the cause of death was of all of those. Of course, there was a war on, but the Great War only claimed the lives of like 600 Oklahomans, whereas the Spanish flu killed 7,500. Uh, that's not millions, and, and people have argued, well, you know, we closed things down during 1918 because the Spanish flu was killing millions, but it only killed 7,500 Oklahomans, and we still shut things down and took adequate precautions. So I think the the parallels are definitely there, and... uh I think our Masonic leadership today is, is definitely doing the right things and has, has taken appropriate notice of those things. When I was about 
12 years old, I found a World War One army helmet at my grandfather's place. My grandma, grandfather already passed, but I asked my grandma, I says, is that my, is that Grandpa Hostler's World War One army helmet? Oh no, he never went across to the, to the war. I said, oh, I said, well, what did he do in the army? I said, oh, he hauled the dead from the flu. And I says, what? So yes, we had so many deads as um they were stacked up on the side of the on the streets like cordwoods. They were just stacked up. I don't know how many highs as buildings burned down because fire departments all died and you know everybody and whole families died. And you know I'm like I thought my grandma's went off a rocker. I mean what in the world? Because <laughs> I had never heard anything about this in history class. I mean there was not and they never said anything until this when the COVID nineteen came up and I seen that PBS special about it and I thought well, okay well maybe Granny wasn't off her meds at the time at all, you know, but yeah, it just it amazes me, you know, everybody talks about history, you know, and they don't realize that if you don't follow history that you're doomed to repeat it, it's like the old saying, and this is definitely a case of that situation. T.S., I was just going to ask you, what projects do you have ahead? Sounds like you're, of course, getting into the uh, the British military collection things, but are you working on any more books, any talks coming up? What's on your horizon? I have a paper that is slated to be published by the Oklahoma Historical Society. I'm, I'm hoping this year, but I haven't heard anything else. And the paper is about, so in McAllister, Oklahoma, at a, in the 19-teens, the uh, the Yorkite Masons there, the the uh, Royal and Select Masters had had built a Masonic temple into a hill north of town, um, specifically for conferring the cryptic degrees. And it had uh, it had a secret vault. It had a tunnel that connected the the temple to a dining hall, and built all of these things specifically for the cryptic degrees. And uh, they would they made annual pilgrimages out to the site to confer the degrees on a class of candidates, sort of like the Scottish Rite. And at the time, this was apparently a, a national attraction because Freemasons from around the nation were coming to these pilgrimages to see this to see this temple. And they had these grand ideas to build this big sort of uh, park around it for, for Masons with a swimming pool and all sorts of stuff. None of that ever came to fruition. Um, but it was, it's, uh, it's sort of McAllister's uh, hidden temple or forgotten temple. Um, and it only existed for maybe, uh, 20 years. So it was completed in the, I think 1919. And by the 1930s, people were no longer going out for the pilgrimages and it fell into disrepair. And the site is on private property today, but exists in ruins. And across Oklahoma, no one really knows about Mount, the name of the temple is Mount Moriah. No one really knows about Mount Moriah. But if you talk to McAllister Masons, they know all about Mount Moriah. And they, you know, the, and when they were kids, these guys would ride their bicycles out there and go through the site and whatnot. So the tunnel, the tunnel that connected the two buildings still exists. But I have a paper that's, that's coming out the, on the history of Mount Moriah, which it's an, I find it to be a really interesting topic. We have a handful of photographs of the, of the way the temple looked at the time. So it's, uh, so keep, it's something to keep an eye out for. Great. So we, again, we appreciate you joining us tonight. I knew nothing of Oklahoma Masonic history, so I've learned a lot. It's just, uh, it's so fascinating, uh, of the Native Americans and the five tribes and, and all of how that came together in the, the Indian Territory and now the state of Oklahoma to learn, uh, just so much more about Freemasonry really in the United States and just how, again, I'm just always amazed at how different it is all over the place, but yet we're still united under that same uh, common brotherhood. So again, we appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. 
And uh, again, you can find TS's books on Amazon. There's uh, five of them he has out there. You can find him on YouTube. And uh, we'll look forward to that paper that you've got coming out. So uh, with that, uh, we appreciate everybody listening in and uh, hope you'll join us again soon for another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Park.